0: If your mother's writing crime and she's writing about you, that's a little bit creepy. She's a woman who uses practically anything she can lay hands on in her writing from her own life or other people's lives. So you can say that she was on both sides of the law fairly early.
1: I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. In this episode, we tell the story of Mary Fortune, a crime writer, and her son George, a career criminal whose life of crime provided a source of inspiration for his mother's detective stories for 40 years. Mary Fortune was one of the world's first female detective writers, but because she wrote under a pseudonym, few people knew she was a woman until decades after her death. Her detective fiction was so accurate in describing police procedure that her stories were even read by many Victorian police officers. Mary Fortune wrote 500 crime stories over 40 years, which ran as a serial called The Detectives' Album in a magazine called The Australian Journal until 1908. In today's podcast, we speak to Melbourne author Lucy Sussex, whose research into Mary Fortune exposed her identity as the writer of The Detectives' Album. After migrating from Ireland to Canada, Mary left her first husband behind and migrated to Australia. She travelled around Victoria's gold fields in the 1850s with a storekeeper who was probably her father. It was there she gave birth to her illegitimate son George, her second child. Lucy Sussex tells us Mary Fortune's writing career first hit a hurdle when a newspaper editor realised she was a woman, not a man, as he hoped.
0: Firstly, she starts off with political radical poetry, because this is just after Eureka. She sends them into the Mount Alexander Mail in Castlemaine, and they print them, and this is her first printed work. They send her a note saying, you know, would MHF, because she sends them in under her initials, Mary Helena Fortune, please call at the office at his earliest convenience. So she trots up with her little boy in tow, and they say, "Oh, you happen to be a woman, ah? Uh, um, we were looking for we we're looking for a man to be a sub editor because at that stage there were very few female journalists, and it was she would have possibly been among the the very first female journalists in Australia if she'd done if she'd got that job. Probably didn't help that she dragged along her little boy. Ah, uh, well, no, but." She was following George Wilson around the, the gold rushes because he was, um, he was a goldfield storekeeper and so they went all sorts of places but ended up in the Avoca region.
1: Mary Fortune continued to travel around the goldfields with the storekeeper. It's thought they probably sold Sly Grog, a crime which later found its way into her detective stories.
0: She's a woman who uses practically anything she can lay hands on in her writing from her own life or other people's lives And the only way to make a living, a good living on the goldfields was to sell grog because there was such a demand for it. And it's possible also that they were running a still because she knows far too much about how to run a still and the worm and the processes and how you had to hide it from the police. So you can say that she was on both sides of the law fairly early. But she gets to Kingawa in the Avoca and she falls for the local constable who's a mounted trooper called Percy Brett. And she marries him. He is the source of her crime writing because she observes him very closely. And although they weren't very l- married very long, she probably didn't tell him that her child was illegitimate and that her husband was still alive because she'd run away from her husband and she committed bigamy, which was incredibly common at those times because you couldn't get divorced very easily because it was still very still very common and expensive up until. Well, up until about the 1970s, I seem to remember. Mary
1: Fortune's marriage broke down soon after. But her big break as a writer came a few years later when a new fiction magazine called The Australian Journal was launched in 1865.
0: In their first issue, they've got a crime serial by a man called James Skip Borlase, who was a lawyer. And she read this and she probably thought, I can do this. So she sends in a contribution as an Australian police officer and writing in a first-person male narration. And they think beauty. And I think the same thing happened, that they offered her more work. So she took the train down to Melbourne and turned up a woman. And But they, they thought, oh, well, if you're writing pseudonymously, it doesn't matter. And she was a freelancer, so she was sending in material from, to them.
1: What was the pseudonym that she was writing under at that stage?
0: Well, she started off writing as as M H F, her initials again. But she was living in a small town, and I think they would have realised there was only one person who could have, with those initials, who writes about having an eight-year-old son who is fatherless and she she gets her first publication as a poem about her son. So I think she very quickly chose a pseudonym, and what she came up with was Waif Wander, which is a very odd pseudonym, but she did feel herself to be a bit of a waif and a bit of a wanderer. She starts writing detective fiction more seriously because she's come down to Melbourne and she's been writing some really good journalism about the Melbourne streets. But from a woman's perspective, I think they said, well, look, you've got to cut... This is a bit obvious, you're a woman, so if you're, well, how about you go www and that's what she uses throughout her career. She's got the Detectives album, which is a, basically a collection of mugshots and so the detective is writing from his collection of mugshots. And that's the whole idea of her serial and she keeps on that way.
1: For 40 years from
0: 1865,
1: Mary Fortune wrote the Detectives album. It was a serialised memoir from the point of view of a fictional Melbourne police detective called Mark Sinclair. He was witty, lively and irreverent, much like Mary Fortune herself. With Mary's identity safely protected by her pseudonym, she was able to somehow befriend people on both sides of the law in Melbourne, and used the details she gleaned to make her crime stories more authentic. She knew
0: police. There's evidence that she knew O'Callaghan, who eventually was a detective at that time and ended up as police commissioner. And so she was getting details from people that she could fit into her story. So detectives on the one hand, but she was living in Collingwood, Fitzroy, knew a lot about the lowlife. And so she uses specific terms, like FISGIG was how they used to refer to informers. That was the police slang term. So she uses that term. And you'd really only know that if you knew the lowlife and the, and, the, and the police quite well. So I think she's getting information from both sides.
1: Mary Fortune was by now a drunk and was locked up at times for drunkenness and vagrancy, but continued to regularly file her copy for the Australian Journal. Her son George first hit trouble with the law at age 14 when he was arrested for stealing a hat and was sent away to industrial school at Sunbury as punishment. Later, he was nabbed for stealing tobacco and was locked up in one of the overcrowded floating prison hulks in the bay off Williamstown. George graduated to more serious crimes, including a bank robbery and a safe cracking. He spent decades in and out of prison. All the while, George's criminal exploits were fictionalised in his mother's writing though she often added a fantasy happy ending for George that was far from the truth.
0: She's got this continual interest with how does somebody reform? What are the avenues that they can reform? How can they possibly make something of themselves when they've got the shadow of the prison hanging over them and people think that they're automatically a bad person and won't give them a chance? So she's very interested with how somebody makes something of themselves after having been a criminal. And it's kind of a fantasy in her mind that he will go, that he will reform himself, and he doesn't until the very end of his life.
1: So often, her stories had a happy ending, even long before her son really did have a happy
0: ending. Well, it's projection, it's fantasy, it's it's a, it's her control of the narrative. Um, she has a boy on the streets um, early on, and. and he assists a policeman with his inquiries into a murder case. And so the policeman buys the boy a suit of clothes and finds him a job in an office. You know, that's one fantasy. Another one is that a boy who's been in trouble, he decides, well, he doesn't want to starve in the city, so he'll try the country, so he becomes a a swaggy. And he's still starving, he's completely ragged, but again he runs into a policeman, he assists the policeman in a murder inquiry, and then he finds a job on a station. And this is what I think George Fortune liked. He was a country boy at heart, and he really wanted to live in the country and work there. And when she depicts him, this this is what he wants. He wants a quiet life in the country. I would think that she probably would have been a bit more careful from the 1880s to to disguise George because when he was done for bank robbery, a journalist said, "Oh, the the, the man Fortune who was arrested, and when George was arrested, he in court said, please mercy for my, my mother whose only fault is to have loved me. Too well think of what this sentence will do to her and this made people curious. So they went looking for her. And then they discovered that she wrote crime stories and then they said, Oh, this is why he is such a bad person because she is creating stories of dubious triumph and this is why he has gone off the straight and narrow and they actually named and they, they actually said that her name was Fortune. I mean that would have been really uncomfortable if you know, if your mother's writing crime and she's writing about you, that's a little bit creepy. By this stage, I think she's aware that the police are reading her too, because the police were aware that she wrote about them, so she's she actually is disguising stuff. She knows the police are reading her stuff because, well, I mean, they couldn't resist. So why were police officers at the time reading her work? It's a kind of a self-valid a sort of a validation. They were intrigued, I think that somebody was writing about them, and with, a degree of accuracy. I think that she had had fans among the police force which would have got quite high. O'Callaghan, the detective. She would have probably known Sadlia who was police commissioner during the Kelly. I think he would have known who she was. Her informers in the police I think were reading it as well as just ordinary constables who were intrigued that there was this long running series based on the police.
1: Mary Fortune also had her fair share of run-ins with the law and first-hand experiences of crime to inform her detective stories. At one stage, she was wanted by police as a witness in a rape case, and police issued this bulletin.
0: Information is required by the Russell Street Police respecting Mary Fortune, who is a reluctant witness in a case of rape, description, 40 years of age, tall, pale complexion, thin build, wore dark jacket and skirt, black hat and old elastic side boots. Is much given to drink and has been locked up several times for drunkenness. Is a literary subscriber, They mean she was a writer, to several of the Melbourne newspapers. Stated she resided with a man named Rutherford in Easy Street in Collingwood and this is February 1874. Okay and what happened as a result of that? Clearly the case did not proceed. Several researchers have looked and they can't find any f- anything further about this, but I would suspect that what she, she knew the perpetrator and the perpetrator was probably someone from whom, of whom she was scared and so she wasn't going to dob him in. And did that event make its way into her writing as well? Curiously, she's one of the few 19th century women who writes about sexual assault, including gang rape. And when she writes about something repeatedly, you get to suspect that she knows a bit more about it than she's saying. But this, she's writing at a stage when, you know, women's virtue was really highly valued, and because she was living with men, she would have been, she was in common law relationship, she would have been considered by the, by the police as little better than a prostitute. She writes with authority, and that's alarming.
1: George Fortune eventually left his life of crime behind and moved to Tasmania, where he died in the early 1900s. Mary Fortune continued to write almost up until her death, about 1911. But it was only recently the mystery of where she was laid to rest was discovered.
0: Various researchers have been looking for her for years, trying to work out when she died. But it finally turned out that she's in Springvale, the Australian Journal who published her, they paid for her burial there. I planned to get a some some official plaque put there, but she kept on writing as long as she possibly could. And then she had a bit of bit of rest and then she died and the Australian Journal buried her buried her in Springvale, but the thing was nobody could find it because they spelt her name with two F's and so there it was just a simple mistake. So fortune
1: with a double F.
0: Yeah, which is a kind of English spelling that's normally Welsh, but never mind.
1: How strange.
0: So she lived till she was about 78? Yeah, she, she must have had the constitution of iron, is all I can say.
1: So when was it finally realised that she was a woman?
0: It didn't really happen until the 1950s when Jack Moyer, who was a book collector, and he came across a copy of her one book, a collection of stories on The Detectives' Album, called The Detectives' Album, which is one of the rarest books in Australian literature. There's possibly only two copies surviving. If anybody finds a copy of the Detectives album by W.W. It's, probably, it's worth a five-figure sum. Moyer got interested in her and started, and he went to the Australian Journal, which was still in existence in the 1950s, and he asked a few questions and eventually found some letters of hers and some poems and people. He found people who knew her and who could knew a little bit, but not all. And part of it was that the Australian Journal knew very well that in those days, a female author who was a bit of a Charles Bukowski, well, oh God, you know. I hope this doesn't get out because we lose the audience and the Australian Journal's detective stories that she wrote were hugely popular. They had an interest in covering it up. Moira found out who she was, but he only got her surname and that she was a woman. When I started researching, I found the shipping records when she arrived in Melbourne with her first son in 1855. I looked at her journalism. She was writing about walking around Melbourne with a boy who's never seen the sea before and I thought okay she must have had a second child and what happened to her first son so I started looking for people named Fortune in the death records and the birth records and that's how I came across that she was Mary Helena Fortune and that was the first evidence in in the official records and then you could just go on and, and accumulate information.
1: Wonderful, that's all we've got time for so thanks for coming in and being part of the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And if listeners want to read more about Mary and George Fortune, you'll find a link to a story about them in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters, written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, and produced by Peter Fuller. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on whatever platform you're listening on. And to get notified when each new episode comes out, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed.
0: another one been
1: shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray
0: search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime